0: Mr. Chief Justice, the of the court. I grew up thinking I was upper middle class. Because if you looked around my area, I mean, we had enough food to eat at night. We kind of had a house. I knew a lot of people that didn't, a lot of my friends. So growing up there, I also knew that the reason I was able to get cobbled together enough scholarships to get to a public university with a good reputation was because of my ability, my resolve, and my skin color.
1: This is Life of the Law, I'm Nancy Mullane. Each summer, people from all over the country gather for the Soros Justice Fellowship Conference Three days of meetings, conversations, and workshops by scholars, journalists, attorneys, and advocates, all working on projects that explore the criminal justice system in America. I should probably mention, in 2009, I received a Soros Justice Media Fellowship. And that's the wonderful thing about the Soros Justice Fellows Program. The Summer Gathering brings together new and former fellows, and this summer in Phoenix, Some took the stage to share personal stories about their work and their lives. The night was hosted by Adam Colbreth, Program Officer of the Soros Justice Fellows Program at the Open Society Foundations.
2: What's wonderful about Ray Dean Karasuda (laughs) is that you all know that sometimes the truth hurts, Right? But Ra Dean has this way of telling you a truth that can hurt that feels like she's giving you a hug. <laughs> so with that I'd like to welcome Ray Dean up to the stage.
3: Aloha, everyone. Um, first of all, I want to acknowledge the native peoples of this land and thank them and their ancestors for giving me the blessing of being able to, to talk here. And I also want to acknowledge um, this room full of very uh, rich experiences and backgrounds and just the amazing work that you folks do. And, um, I'm thankful. This really is an honor, although it's extremely nerve-wracking. It's easy for me to talk about my justice work, but it's really hard to get up before an audience and be vulnerable. A lot of it has to do with uh, a lot of us were raised to kind of not tell our stories, right? But when I think about my story, um, I think about my dad, who was my hero. On May 7, 2004, I sat by his bedside and I watched him take his last breath. And, you know, for a, for a number of years after that, I was really traumatized by that vision until somebody said, how lucky you were, Ray Dean, to see him take his first breath in heaven. And that changed the perspective. And isn't that like stories for us, right? As far as I'm concerned, I'm made up of all of my experiences, but I'm also made up of the stories that I tell and the stories that have been told to me. And the reason why my father was my hero is because we were so alike. And many of um, for, for a lot of our journey, we banged heads. But I want to tell you that on May 7, 2004, when I was with him and I was privileged to sit by his bedside when he passed away, I want to tell you that that was a miracle. Because there was a time, about 15 years, that we didn't talk. You know, when I was um, growing up, my father used to tell me stories about how he was growing up um, and how he was growing up in a predominantly Japanese neighborhood. Um, My grandmother, uh, her parents immigrated from China to work on the plantations in Hawaii. She crossed that racial line when she married my grandfather, who was Hawaiian. They were both the first in their family in the early 1900s. to just take a bold step and do what was unpopular at the time. And then my father and my mother, my mother who's white, my father who was half Hawaiian, half Chinese, did the same thing, and they crossed that line. And, you know, I come from Hawaii, and a lot of people have ideas about what Hawaii is all about. Um, It really is positioned as a paradise, and um, it really isn't. For a lot of people, Um, we have over 10 million people that flock the islands to visit every year. Um, And they come with this notion that there's happy natives and wonderful, wonderful hula girls, and we're there to serve them and be hospitable. So they get really shocked when uh, those of us who do justice work tell them that there's 10 flights a day on United to take one back. So um, let me go back. So my father's story is riddled with poverty, um, riddled with exclusion. Uh, he used to tell me stories about how he grew up in this neighborhood and couldn't afford um, the five cents um, that it costed to go into the movie theater. And he'd wait for all his, his Japanese neighborhood friends outside the movie theater. And then he'd watch them eat ice cream that he couldn't afford um, and so I grew up with a lot of stories around class, and it wasn't until um, I became cognizant of, of race within my, my family structure. Um, when he was 18, he moved to the continent to go to college. Um, for him, that was the way out of poverty, and um, he tells a lot of stories about how the racism that he experienced when he, he got to the continent. Um, people mistook him for being Mexican and called him wet back. And you know, for me, when I grew up hearing those kinds of stories, I thought, wow, what a tragedy. First of all, he's being degraded. And second of all, there's another, another culture that people just disdain. And so for me, that was the foundation. But the reason why I tell you that it was a miracle and it was a privilege for me to be by my father's bedside is because I, t- I took a windy road to where I got to today. Um, I started using drugs when I was 11 years old, and by the se- time I was 17, I was homeless. Um, I had been in three violent relationships. Um, I was shooting $500 a day worth of dope, and, and I was terrorizing my family. They had to start neighborhood watch when it wasn't even really existing. Because they were afraid that I was going to come in the middle of the night and murder them. And so it took a long time for my father to trust and believe that I really got clean. Ironically, I spent my 29th uh, birthday in sobriety last month by the bedside of a man who used to drink with my father and who helped me get clean and sober 29 years ago. And isn't that how our stories go? It always comes full circle. Isn't that how our stories go? And you know what? Even though we're different, and I I, I love difference. I love difference. You know, back um, maybe 10 years ago, there was a movement to be colorblind. I'm like, I don't want to be blind to colors. I want to see all the colors, and I want to enjoy them, you know. Um, But anyway, you know, it took my dad a long time, and it wasn't until I was eight years clean that he was willing to even give me the time of day. And so for me, my life, um, I think it's made up of a series of miracles, you know. And when I think of those miracles, I think of my father. I think of the fact that when when I was six years clean, I was diagnosed with cancer. You know, it's kind of like, what, what do you do when, when life hits you, right? Life hands you lemonade, lemons, you make lemonade. And so for me, I did um, what I, the only thing I knew to do. Um, I was diagnosed, started radiation, was fighting in an anti-domestic violence agency, told my boss off, got fired, got denied unemployment, so I went to school. And, you know, it's funny for my father education was the way out for me education was the way out for other people it's different but for me I stayed in school for 15 years and I went to school full-time I worked full-time I did justice work full-time and I ended up with a PhD how the hell But you know, I didn't do it alone. There's no way I could have done it alone. Um, And for me, by the time that I um, decided to get my PhD, um, I knew it wasn't for me. It was for a collective. I just wanted those three letters behind my name because I wanted to knock down doors that were closed to me. And since then I have. But you know what? The bottom line is until everybody else around me has access, it's not worth anything. So I got my PhD in political science, and the interesting thing, which is actually quite shocking to some people, is I didn't learn my history. I didn't learn my history until I was 30 years old. I didn't know that our last monarch was overthrown in 1893, that our language was banned, that, the, that when the missionaries came and when Captain Cook came in 1778, we were a million people strong, and within a few decades, we were 40,000 Because of disease. You know, the funny thing is what history, learning my own history did for me is it gave me a confidence and a fire inside. Because I, believe me, I'm culpable and I have agency for my own choices. Sitting around banging dope was my choice. But I tell you what, it wasn't just me. There were external factors that lasted for 200 years that contributed to that part of my story. And so when I got this fellowship and I took took this notion of political reintegration into the prisons the best thing people said was I want to teach this to my children the the other best thing people said is now I know it wasn't just it wasn't just me Why is it that Hawaiians have the highest rates of incarceration, the highest rates of poverty, the highest rates of obesity and chronic disease, the lowest rates of unemployment and undereducation? Why is it like that for people all over the world who are people of color and natives who are dispossessed? There's something wrong with this picture. Something wrong with this picture. And so for me, it's, it's a matter of what do I contribute every day? I contribute who I am. I contribute what I have. And I do it as a collective of people, whether you're in my realm or not. And so, you know, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for this opportunity. I'm not real long-winded. I didn't know that when I tell people the truth, it feels like a hug. I think Adam's referring to the fact that we got into a mad beef three years ago because people wanted to come to the to Hawaii to have a conference. Sorry, Adam, you put you gave the mic to me. Um, and I understand perception, but you got to understand that myth of paradise started with the missionaries whose sons later overthrew our queen. And by the way, many of us don't feel like we're U.S. citizens and don't believe we are. We believe we're illegally occupied still. So my thing is, if we ever do come to Hawaii, the conference will be rich and filled with nuances. We'll take you out on the North Shore so you can't dig out and go to Waikiki. But it'll be a lot of cultural protocol. It'll be a lot of learning that, yes, there are nuances to racism and classism and homophobia, that one size does not fit all. And until we all understand one another or at least support each other, there's always going to be a divide. And there's always going to be somebody like a lunatic who wants to be president to come and make more divide. So I just want to thank you. I hope that I, I left you with, with, with something different to think about. Um, and I just want to thank Adam and Chrissy and mahalo, my, my girl, Carrie Ann Shirota, who's a 2009 fellow who, who brought this lei for me, uh, made of tea leaf, which is a sign of protection for Hawaiians. And um, I feel like I have home with me. So thank you.
2: Ray Dean. Our next storyteller um, was awarded a fellowship in 2015. And um, I just recall an image of him walking into our office during the new fellow's orientation. Um, a tall white man with a deep southern baritone. Wearing a seersucker suit. <laughs> now, so, Norrin Sanford, I'm sure... <laughs> Hold on, Noren, before you get up here, I just have to... <laughs> um, what I appreciate about Norrin is, as a white southerner, wearing a seersucker sh- suit, You offer the opportunity to challenge some, say, stereotypes. Um, You challenge the stereotypes that I have in the person that you are, and just as importantly, in the work that you do, which is radically transformative. Um, So, Nora Sanford.
0: So I came home in 2000. In the year 2000, I moved back to my hometown in rural North Carolina, North Carolina, South Carolina border. You know that angle between North and South Carolina kind of points to us right there. That's all we got. So Robinson County, Scotland County, uh, small town of Laurenburg. My zip code doesn't have a name. At least not one that you know. My zip code does have the highest violent crime rate, the highest unemployment, the highest poverty, the worst health outcomes in North Carolina. I moved back to my hometown to take care of my mom, who was an Alzheimer's victim. And I moved back as a newlywed. my Southern California wife moving into rural North Carolina. She a vegetarian, moving into a county that had more hogs in it than people. We weren't just moving back to my hometown. We were moving into the modest brick rancher that I was raised in, into my adolescent bedroom. (laughs) Still had posters on the wall. Black flag, public enemy. Good news and bad news, right? The good news is I'm still married. Uh, The bad news is she's no longer a vegetarian. So I moved back in 2000, and we're unpacking, and my mom is busy forgetting. And she's forgetting my childhood. She's returning to her childhood in the deep mountains of North Carolina. Growing up without electricity, no indoor plumbing, to the happiest time of her life. I was, depending on the day, a sibling, a neighbor, often her dad. What was amazing is that the first person my mom forgot was my father. Now, my father was a hard man to forget. Six foot two would trim down the 250 as his fighting weight. He was a drill instructor, a a drill sergeant in World War II. So my dad was 52 when I was born. My mom was 46, she thought I was menopause and then one day I kicked. (laughs) So my dad had a great sense of humor. He was life of the party. He was loud. He was life of the party. The parties often involved law enforcement and alcohol, not in that order. To give you a sense of that, we had a family pet that was an African parrot that was given to my dad to settle a debt. And the African parrot somehow, while living at my house, had developed a significant drinking problem. And so, at one of these legendary parties in Laurenburg, my parrot, my family pet, stumbles out of the backyard into the neighbor's bushes and is cursing loudly when the Laurenburg Police Department is called out and arrests my family pet. So I am so Scott Irish that I had a family pet arrested for a drunken disorderly. (laughs) Now, my mom could remember that parrot, but she could not remember that it wasn't just the parrot who had a drinking problem. My mom did not remember the nights that she would stare out a dark window at the kitchen sink singing hymns loudly while my drunken dad... Was ripping the windshields out of the cars because we wouldn't give them the keys. My mom didn't remember sending her seven-year-old son out to the front yard yet again to pilp to get his drunken dad back into the house. My mom didn't remember one of the few times I ever saw her cry late at night looking at bills because we we're going to lose the house again. You see, when you grow up in a tough area, in a zip code that doesn't have a name, it's hard to get perspective. There was no mass transit. You couldn't get on a bus and go to a nice library, a YMCA, a cultural center. Most of our cultural events were fairly dangerous, actually. And so I grew up thinking I was upper middle class, because if you looked around my area, I mean. We had enough food to eat at night. We kind of had a house. I knew a lot of people that didn't, a lot of my friends. So growing up there, I also knew that the reason I was able to get cobbled together enough scholarships to get to a public university with a good reputation was because of my ability, my resolve, and my skin color. Not in that same order. Because where I was, had a lot of friends, didn't have that same opportunity. So you go to college start to learn things. First thing I learned is that I was not upper middle class. (laughs) So I did learn to speak differently. I did learn to eat differently. I did learn to carry myself differently in order to get access to the opportunity that I needed. And so when I got back in 2000, I was able to unpack some of that privilege. I was able, as a newly minted mental health therapist, to begin working in our area. You see, when I came back to take care of my mom, she'd forgotten a lot. She had forgotten that growing up and the, the, the years before when my father had died, that growing up, My dad was hunted by the need for us to have better than he had. He had grown up working in a textile mill in a town next to us, a town owned by the textile mill, and he wanted us to be better than those factory bats. Factory bat, poor person working in a textile mill in the south. He wanted us to be better than all those people. So as a white guy growing up in a region where I was not the majority, I could not have my African-American or Native American friends in my yard. So I was raised to be a racist. My mom didn't remember that from age five, I had a lot of debates with my father. She didn't remember that the more I got knocked down, the stronger my resolve was when I stood back up. And so now, taking care of my mom, providing a good death for her over those years, I got to make my own rules. And so we began working with young people who had been kicked out of home, kicked out of school, and put on probation at a young age in order for them to grow into the regional leaders that we needed to help us change our grim outcomes. And in that context, those young leaders are helping us to flip closed prisons into sustainable farms and educational centers in rural North Carolina. And so now, those Native American, African American, Latino, and Caucasian young leaders come to my home As we work together, I have truly come home. Thank you.
2: next storyteller um, is from the class of 2011. And, you know, 2011 is not a long time ago, but we periodically, you know, don't hear from fellows in a while. wonder where they are. Um, and a few months ago, I got an email from one of our colleagues at OSF in the communications department, and he said... Um, do you have a fellow named Jacinta Gonzalez? And I said, Well, yeah, she received a fellowship. Um, he said, Can you take a look at this link? So I click on this link to the, the daily news in the United UK publication. And I click on the link, and it says Soros fellow arrested for chaining herself to truck. On highway that leads to Trump rally in Arizona. So I said, Oh, that's where Jacinta is. (laughs) So Jacinta, can you come up and join us?
4: Great, now everyone who doesn't know will Google it, so thanks, Adam. Um, So just a couple of months ago, I got my first apartment in a very long time. I decided, uh, in my full judgment, to move to Phoenix, Arizona um, in the middle of the summer. And I opened the door to my apartment, which I had only gotten because I was pushed and pushed and pushed by many friends. I slept on many couches, borrowed several trailers, uh, used some guest bedrooms, and kind of refused to accept that I had to get my own place. Um, But finally I did, and I walked in, and I looked around a very empty, empty place with just my suitcase. And I was like, shit, now what do I do? So the first thing I did is I turned on the AC, because it's Arizona. And I thought, I have central AC, finally. And, you know, I was barely getting adjusted to the, to the Arizona heat, but I had gotten a, a good trial run. Um, I moved to Arizona from Sonora, Mexico, where I had just spent about a year uh, working on a campaign that was very dear to my heart. Um, in just a year, I practically was in a car for about 45,000 kilometers We would just drive every day up and down the river, and the Sonoran River, because the third largest copper mine had had one of the worst environmental disasters in mining history in Mexico, contaminating the river for over 30,000 people. And so for a whole year, we would drive up and down and talk to people. They would put up their babies and see, see, see the marks? People were starting to get all sorts of diseases because of the contaminated water. In that process, I really started to push, well, what what am I capable of, you know? When I first got the call about this campaign, I was told, well, we've been trying to get people to do it, but it's it's Grupo Mexico, it's the second largest man, the richest man in Mexico. No one wants to confront this company. And I said, well, that sounds fun. That sounds like a good challenge. Why don't we go there? And in the process, I kept thinking about crisis. Who creates these crises? And then who pays for them? This mine basically got the worst fine in the history of Mexico. It was only 0.03% of their profits. Yet communities were continuing to organize. And I felt terrified and thrilled at the same time. And I watched myself respond to this crisis I watched myself sort of deal with the heat this car these 40,000 kilometers no AC. And I thought, "Ah, I'm tough. I'm hard. I can do this." And I started to realize that it became part of a cycle of responding to crisis. We need to be able to create and we need to be able to push our own boundaries time and time again. Then I thought, "Why am I here?" Well, again the anniversary August water. I started to figure out, what are these patterns in my life? I learned to organize in post-Katrina, New Orleans. I got to New Orleans um, about a year after the storm. And the reason I fell in love with New Orleans was pretty horrible. I was doing day labor outreach. I was on a day labor corner, talking to guys, asking them how many kids they had, what the labor issues were. At that time, I still didn't know how to drive, All I had was my Mexican passport on me, even though I'm uh, both a U.S. and Mexican citizen. And all of a sudden, I turned around and I heard someone say, La migra! Everyone disappeared. And it was just me and some ICE agents. And again, crisis pushes our boundaries. It pushes our limits. I never knew I knew how to fake a southern accent. (laughs) I never knew I had it in me. And I just, you know, how you doing, sir? What were you doing? And I started to realize that it became an exercise. It became an exercise of practicing our politic, of really being there in the moment of crisis where people needed you, being able to show the strength that you might not feel, but you had to project, because that's what the moment needs. That's what the moment demands of us. We have to rise to the occasion. And then we start to rise and we start to rise, but what's grounding us? What's keeping us in that moment? I've been battling with borders and boundaries my entire life. Even though I was born in Mexico, I built my political home in the U.S., in New Orleans, in the South. But then I felt I had to go home. And then when I got home in Mexico, I realized it wasn't the same home. It was the same dynamics that were playing out. I had the privilege of being able to go back and forth and back and forth. Yet that didn't mean that any place would feel... Whole would feel right because I was still searching for that crisis, searching for that moment that would define me, that would make me rise to what I hoped my expectations would be. And so, with all of these trips with experience, you know, I realized that these moments of crisis makes us notice how to build community, how to build a sense of stability. I built committees in the river basin in Sonora. I built the Congress of Day Laborers in New Orleans. And yet, when I showed up in Arizona, I had a suitcase. I didn't have towels. I didn't have pots and pans. I definitely didn't have furniture. And honestly, I didn't even know how to use a phone. <laughs> Living in Sonora, because of the, the, the amount of uh, violence, we actually had to use the little phones so that they couldn't track us as we were going up and down the river. We had to make sure that people, the company, wouldn't be able to monitor our phones, monitor our computers. And so, to me, it was that challenge of being being able to overcome the fear. The fear of knowing that if you were driving at night, the fear of knowing that in New Orleans, you would get that call. They're trying to deport my husband. They're trying to deport my wife. They're trying to deport my son. And so, for me, there's been this process of trying to figure out how do we deal with the crisis that is within. So many times, we see the crisis that is outside, we respond to our families. We respond to our communities. We respond to the nation. We respond to Donald Trump sometimes. But yet that that starvation that we have inside to have some feeling of rootedness is what keeps us going. And so I'm not quite sure how we do that, but a, a wonderful friend and comrade of mine, Marisa Franco, always says, We have to be rule breakers, border crossers, and center at the margins. I've broken some rules. I've crossed some borders, both internal and external. And even though I'm trying to center at the margins, I'm not quite sure how to do that. But at least I bought a bed. I bought a mattress and I bought some towels. That's the first part of the journey. And even though I don't think I'll ever know what side of the border to live on, and that flow will continue, and crisis will continue. To me, the feeling of grounding that I get is creating a political home that includes many of the folks in this room, that allows us to be able to not only push for the crises that we see around us, but pushes us to rise to the occasion to be the crisis that we want to see, to shake things up in the way that we want to be. see possible. Thank you.
1: Live Law Phoenix was held at the 2016 Summer Gathering of the Soros Justice Fellows. We'd like to thank Adam Colbreth, Program Officer of the Soros Justice Fellowship, for hosting, and Christina Voigt, Program Coordinator for her co-production of the event. And a very special thanks to each of the storytellers, Radine Karasuda, Norin Sanford, Nuri Nusrat, Jacinta Gonzalez, Steven Sifra, and Tarsha Jackson. You can hear all of the stories presented at Live Law Phoenix By going to our website, lifeofthelaw.org. Jonathan Hirsch designed the sound. Our post production editors are Kirsten Jesuits Heidel and Rachel Kane. Howard Gelman was our engineer. And a special note, the Open Society Foundations is accepting applications for the 2017 fellowships. The Soros Justice Fellowship annually funds 13 to 15 outstanding individuals to undertake projects that advance reform, spur debate, and catalyze change on a range of issues facing the U.S. criminal justice system. This year, fellowship applications are due on Wednesday, October 12th. To learn more, go to theopensocietyfoundations.org. If you like stories about the law but have gotten tripped up by the legal system, tune into Life of the Law on iTunes. We bring stories about the law and people's lives, stories about dairy farmers who work without regulatory protection, men and women who can't make bail, and people who fall in love but have to wait for the law to catch up. Take a few minutes to post your review of Life of the Law on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Each time we publish a new episode, we send people who have subscribed to our newsletter a behind-the-scenes look at Life of the Law that includes notes from our storytellers and reporters and previews of upcoming episodes. You can subscribe at lifeofthelaw.org. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply network of podcasts from Slate. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're funded by the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the National Science Foundation, the Ford Foundation, and the Proteus Fund. That only tells half the story. Life of the Law is dependent on your support to keep our amazing project in production. Visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and make a very much appreciated donation to help pay for the direct costs of producing each and every episode. Make a tax-deductible donation, and we'll send you a beautiful red Life of the Law reporter's notebook, a Live Law canvas tote bag, or a Life of the Law mug for tea. It's our way of saying thank you. Next on Life of the Law...
0: I had a picture of him in the 80s, and he was a big, strong, weightlifting guy. And then when he passed away, he was kind of a... A little skinny, skinny old man. It's just completely different. You know, all white hair, real sharp features, you know, cheekbones sticking out. And the, the pictures that I had from him younger, he was just young, really long hair. Didn't even look like the same guy at all.
1: That's next on Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.